Section 11 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 3 The Ottoman Conquest by J. B. Burry. Part 3 the spirit of Selim I was very different from that of his father. He was resolved to resume the old paths of forward policy from which the studious temper of Bayezid had digressed and to follow in the way of Mohammed the Conqueror. Yet he was also unlike his grandfather. He reveled in war and death. All his deeds seem prompted rather by instinct than by policy. Mohammed seems almost genial beside this gloomy and restless soul. Selim the Grim delighted in cruelty, but he was extremely moderate in pleasure. Like his father and uncle, he was highly cultivated. He raised the pay of the Janissaries. This was the need of their support, but he soon showed that he was resolved to be their master. The truth is that the Janissaries were an institution ill-compatible with a peace policy. Amenable to the discipline of war, they were a perpetual danger for a pacific ruler. The collisions with Persia and Egypt, which menaced the reign of Bayezid, actually came to pass after the accession of Selim. The Shah, Ismail, had given an asylum to the sons of Ahmed and had made an incursion into the eastern districts of the Ottoman Empire, 1513. But the fundamental cause of the Persian War was religious antagonism. It was a struggle between the great Sunnite and the great Shiite power. It was stamped with this character by a sweeping act of persecution on the part of Selim, who, seizing 40,000 Shiites, killed some and imprisoned others and the mutual attitude of the rival superstitions was shown in a high-flown letter which Selim, when he took the field, 1514, indicted to his enemy. He marched into the dominions of Ismail, and the decisive battle was fought in the plain of Chalduran, lying further east than the field which had seen the struggle of Muhammad with Uzun Hassan. The Ottomans were again successful, on this occasion, too, their superiority in artillery told, and Tavriz fell into the hands of Selim. In the following year, Sulkadr was annexed, and in 1516, northern Mesopotamia, including, among other cities, Amida, Nisibis, Dara, and Edessa, was conquered and became a province of the Ottoman Empire. This conquest led to designs on Syria and Egypt, a sufficient pretext being found in the alliance between the old Mamluk sultan, Kansu Guri, and the Shah Ismail. The Mamluk army awaited the invader at Aleppo, and Selim, here again conspicuously superior in artillery, won a victory which decided the fate of Syria, 1516, the old sultan's successor, Tuman Beg, was defeated in an equally disastrous battle at Redenia near Cairo, January 1517. 
Thus, Syria and Egypt were brought once more under the authority of the lords of Constantinople, to remain so actually or formally till the present day. The conquest of Egypt was followed by the submission of Arabia to the sultan's sway. The same year which saw the conquest of the Nile country witnessed an important exaltation of the dignity of the Ottoman ruler. The Ottoman princes had been originally emirs under the Seljuks, and even after they had become the strongest power of the Mohammedan world, though they might demean themselves as caliphs, they had no legal claim to be considered its heads. It is one of the fundamental principles of Islam that all Muslims shall be governed by a single imam, and that imam must be a member of the Quraysh, the tribe of the Prophet. At this time, the imamship was in the hands of a shadow, Muhammad Abu Jafar, of the race of Hashim, who kept up the semblance of a court at Cairo. The last of the caliphs of the Abbasid line, he resigned the caliphate to the Sultan Selim. This formal transference is the basis of the claims of the sultans of Turkey to be the imams or supreme rulers of Islam, though they have not a drop of Koreish blood in their veins. The translation of the caliphate was confirmed by the recognition which Selim received at the same time from the Sharif of Mecca, who sent him the keys of the Kaaba, thus designating him as the protector of the holy places. The Imam, according to the Ottoman Code of Mohammedan law, has authority to watch over the maintenance of the laws and the execution of punishments, to defend the frontier and repress rebels, to raise armies and levy tribute, to celebrate public prayer on Fridays and in Bayram, to judge the people, to marry minors of both sexes who have no natural guardians, and to divide the spoils of war. He is thus supreme legislator and judge, the religious head of the state, the commander-in-chief, and he possesses absolute control of the finances. His ecumenical authority rests on a verse of the Koran. Whoever dies without acknowledging the authority of the imam of his day is dead in ignorance. The imam must be visible to men. He cannot lurk in a cave like the Mahdi, for whose coming the heretical Shiites look. It is discreetly provided that the imam need not be just or virtuous, or the most eminent man of his time. It is requisite only that he should be able to enforce the law, defend the frontiers, and sustain the oppressed. Moreover, the wickedness and tyranny of an imam would not necessitate or justify his deposition. The brilliant conquests of Selim in the East alarmed the powers of the West, returning powerful and proud such a monarch as he was a terrible menace to Europe. Leo X had thrown himself with zeal into the project of a crusade, for the experience of sixty years of futilities had not killed that idea. In 1517, he issued a bull imposing a truce of five years on Christendom in order that the princes of Europe might march against the infidels.
His hopes rested chiefly on the young French king, Francis I, who, after the victory of Marignano, had met him at Bologna and discussed with him the Eastern question. A letter of Francis, written soon after that interview, breathes the spirit of a knight-errant dedicating his youth and strength to a holy war. But though Francis was in earnest, religious enthusiasm was not his moving inspiration or his guiding idea. His project was that the three great powers of Europe, the Empire, France, and Spain, should conquer the Turkish realm and divide it amongst them in three equal parts. Thus, the Eastern question began to enter upon its modern phase, assuming a political rather than a religious aspect, and the significance of the Oriental policy of Francis I was that he definitely formulated the doctrine, now a commonplace of politics, that Turkey is a spoil to be parted among the great powers of Europe. The new conception of the French king was indeed more likely to lead to practical results than had been the arguments of Aeneas Silvius and his successors, and the emperor Maximilian composed a memoir of suggestions on the conduct of the proposed war. But his death in 1519 changed the situation, disconcerting the plan of the European powers, and the favorable hour for a common enterprise against the Turk had passed. Men were, indeed, still painfully afraid of the designs of the formidable sultan. The logic of geography determined that, after the acquisition of Egypt, the next enterprise of Selim should be the conquest of Rhodes, which lay right in the track of communication between Egypt and Constantinople. He made preparations accordingly for the destruction of the dogs of Rhodes. But when his fleet and army were ready, he was smitten down by the plague, September 21, 1520, having, in his short reign, done as much as any of the sultans for the extension and prestige of the Ottoman Empire. On his death, Europe, full of apprehensions for the fate of Rhodes, breathed securely, but the feeling of relief was premature. The rumor had spread that his son and successor was, in complete contrast to his father, of a quiet, unaggressive nature, and might prove another Bayezid. But these auguries were ill-based, for the youth who mounted the throne was Soliman, Sulaimane, the lawgiver, known to the West as Soliman the Magnificent, in whose reign Turkey climbed to the summit of its power and glory. He was as strong as his father, a soldier as well as a statesman, but his mind was well balanced. He felt none of Selim's grim delight in war and butchery. Perhaps no contemporary sovereign in Christendom was so unfeignedly desirous or so sincerely resolute to administer even-handed justice as Soliman. His reign began without bloodshed. He was lucky enough to have no brother or nephew to remove. The only trouble was a rebellion in Syria which was promptly crushed. The wave which had flowed eastward under Selim turns westward again under Soliman. He had been viceroy in Europe 
during his father's absence in the Orient, and he had occasion to observe the intolerable situation on the northwestern frontier, where there was continuous friction with the Hungarian kingdom. On this side, he could not feel safe so long as the key fortresses of Belgrade and Sabac were in the hands of the Hungarians. These places must be captured, whether as a base for further advance or as the bulwarks of a permanent frontier. Envoys were sent to King Louis, demanding tribute. He replied by murdering the envoys. When this news arrived, the sultan's thought was to march straight on Buda, but his military advisers pointed out that he could not leave Sabach in his rear. The operations on the Save were protracted during the whole summer, 1521. Sabach was taken under the eye of the sultan himself, and a few days later Semlin was captured by his generals. But Soliman was compelled to recognize that Belgrade must also be secured, and after a difficult siege it was taken through treachery. Soliman kept a diary of the campaign so that we can read his doings day by day. Other fortresses, such as Slankamen and Mitrovic, fell into his hands, and thus the gates of Hungary were fully unlocked whenever he chose to pass in. As yet, he did not press on to Buda. A more urgent task lay before him in another quarter, the conquest of Rhodes. Where Mohammed had failed, his great-grandson was to succeed. Belgrade had fallen. Rhodes was now to fall. The pirate ships of the Rhodian knights were a pest to the eastern waters of the archipelago and the Asiatic coasts, and not only was it imperative for the sultan that his line of communication with Egypt should be cleared of the corsair nest, but it was in the interest of public order that the island should be annexed to the Turkish realm. The lords of Rhodes had to depend entirely on themselves without aid from the West. The first principle of Venetian policy at this time was to keep on good terms with the Turk. The signory had congratulated Selim on his conquests and had transferred to him the tribute for Cyprus previously paid by them to the Sultan of Egypt. They had congratulated Soliman on his accession, and of all foreigners, they had the most advantageous commercial position in the Ottoman realm. They were, therefore, careful to lend no countenance to Rhodes. In summer 1522, the main army of the Turks, under Soliman himself, marched across Asia Minor to the Carian coast, and a fleet of about 300 ships carried select troops. In all, the Turkish army was about 200,000 strong, including 60,000 miners from Wallachia and Bosnia. The Grand Master, Leal Adam, had made all possible preparations. An iron chain locked the harbor, and outside it, a boom of timber floated from the windmill tower at the northeast point of the harbor to Fort St. Nicholas, which stood at the end of a mole on the northwest side. The houses beyond the walls were demolished to deprive the foe of shelter 
and supply stones for new defenses. The precaution was taken of removing the slaves from the powder mills. Free men were set to work there day and night. The first great assault in September was repelled with such enormous loss that Soliman resigned himself to the tactics of wearying the garrison out. In December, as the ammunition of the besieged was failing, the Grand Master agreed to surrender. Free departure within ten days was conceded to all the Latin knights. Any who chose to remain in the island were to be free from taxes for five years, were not to be subject to the child tribute, and were to enjoy free exercise of their religion. Hostages were exchanged, and Soliman withdrew his army some miles from the walls to allow the garrison to depart in peace. But it was hard to keep the Turkish troops under control, and on Christmas Day a body of soldiers burst in and sacked the city. The majority of the knights sought refuge in Crete to find eight years later an abiding home in Malta. By the capture of the two bulwarks of Christendom which had defied the conqueror of Constantinople, the young sultan established his fame. Belgrade and Rhodes fallen, as Pope Adrian wrote, the passages to Hungary, Sicily, and Italy lie open to him. There was as much cause for alarm in the West as there had been on the captures of Negroponte and Scodra. But the conqueror could not immediately follow up his victories. Now, as often, events in the eastern dominions of the sultan procured a respite for his western neighbors. A revolt in Egypt and disquiet in Asia Minor claimed Soliman's attention, and not till the fourth year after the fall of Rhodes could he march on Buddha, quote, to pluck up, in the words of a Turkish historian, the strong-rooted tree of evil unbelief from its place beside the rose-bed of Islam, end quote. Sooner or later, this expedition was inevitable, but it may have been hastened by a year or two through the action of one of the Christian powers. After the sudden disaster of Pavia, February 1525, Francis I, a captive in his enemy's hands, looked abroad for succor, and the only European power he could discern, strong enough to bear effectual help, was the Turk, to whose extirpation he had devoted himself some years before. No scruple was felt in appealing to the common foe. The French king's mother dispatched an ambassador to Soliman with rich presents, but in passing through Bosnia, he and his companions were slain and robbed by the Sanjak Beg, a second envoy, with a letter written by the king himself in his captivity at Madrid, suggesting that the sultan should attack the king of Hungary, arrived safely at Constantinople. Without committing himself, Soliman returned a gracious answer in this style. Quote, I, who am the sultan of sultans, the sovereign of sovereigns, the distributor of crowns to the monarchs of the surface of the globe, the shadow of God on the earth, the sultan and padishah of the White Sea, the Black Sea, Rumelia, Anatolia, Karamania, Rum, Sulchadr, 
Diyarbakır, Kurdistan, Azerbaijan, Persia, Damascus, Aleppo, Cairo, Mecca, Medina, Jerusalem, all Arabia, Yemen, and other countries which my noble ancestors, may God brighten their tombs, conquered, and which my august majesty has likewise conquered with my flaming sword, Sultan Suleiman Khan, son of Sultan Selim, son of Sultan Bayezid. You, who are Francis, king of France, you have sent a letter to my porte, the refuge of sovereigns. End quote. Then he heartens the captive and observes, quote, Night and day, our horse is saddled and our sword girt on. End quote. This was the first embassy of a French king to the Porte, the beginning of France's oriental politics. It was, naturally, the interest of the Sultan to cultivate friendly relations with the western neighbors of Germany and the Empire. But Francis hardly looked beyond the immediate emergency, and at the beginning of 1526, when he won his freedom by the Treaty of Madrid, he undertook to help the emperor in an expedition against the Turks. The efforts of the popes, meanwhile, to organize a crusade had failed as before. Adrian had proclaimed a holy truce for three years. The Minorites had dreamed of an army of crusaders furnished by all the monasteries of Europe, quote, for the confusion and destruction of the Turks, end quote. The Reformation reacted on the Eastern question. The mere fact that the Roman See continuously and consistently exhorted to a crusade was, to the adherents of the new religious movement, an argument against a Turkish war. Luther himself announced the principle that to resist the Turks was to resist God, who had sent them as a visitation. At a safe distance, this was a comfortable doctrine. But some years later, when the visitation drew nigh to the heart of Germany itself, the reformer was somewhat embarrassed to explain away his earlier utterances. The diffusion of the doctrine of the reformers seems to have been one of the causes which slackened and weakened the resistance of Hungary to the Ottoman invasion. But the main cause was that King Louis was not competent as ruler or as leader. He had not the trust of his kingdom, and he was unable to cope with the opposition and dilatoriness of the Diet. The transactions of the Diet during the crisis are a melancholy comedy. The king and the councillors severally disclaiming any responsibility for consequences of the coming invasion and the safety of the realm. Help from his neighbors, Louis could not expect. Venice had congratulated Soliman on the capture of Rhodes and was still on most friendly terms with him. Poland had just concluded a peace with him. The distant kingdoms of England and Portugal promised subsidies but it was on his brother-in-law, Charles V, that Louis depended. Charles sent reinforcements, but they came too late, two days after the decision of the campaign. The most competent general the Hungarians could have chosen would have been John Zapolya, the voivod of Transylvania, but he was not trusted. The command devolved upon Louis himself, in default of a better man and at the start, 
want of money rendered it difficult to mobilize. It was decided to defend the line of the Save, but when it came to the point, the lukewarmness of the magnates caused this plan to be abandoned. The only really energetic man in the land was Archbishop Tomori, who did what he could to make defensible Peter Wardine, the chief fortress of the Danube, between the mouths of the Drava and the Save. The Sultan set out towards the end of April with an army of 100,000 and 300 cannons, and his diary chronicles the heavy rainfalls which made his advance painful and slow, so that he did not reach Belgrade till July 9, when he was joined by his infantry, the Janissaries, which had been transported up the Danube by a flotilla. Ibrahim, the Grand Vizier, had been sent forward to take Peter Wardine, and it was in Turkish hands before the end of July. After the fall of this bulwark, a bloody sword was carried, according to custom, throughout the Hungarian land, summoning men to help their country in the hour of her utmost jeopardy. Zapolya was waiting, uncertain what to do. Receiving a command from the king to join the army, he obeyed slowly, but only reached Zegedin on the Tice, where he remained. There is not the least proof that he was acting in collusion with the Turk. The most that can be said is that he was secretly pleased at the embarrassing situation of King Louis. The Hungarian army advanced to Tolna, and all told they were perhaps fewer than 30,000. It was now a question whether the line of the Drava should be held. But while the Hungarians were deliberating, the Turks had crossed that river at Essek, August 20-21. to 21. The Chancellor Broderith gave the council to fall back to Buda, but messages from Tomori at Nusatz urged the king to give battle in the plain of Mohach, south of Tolna, where he had taken up a position. On August 29, the Turks were known to be not far off, and the Hungarians spread out their two lines, a long thin line of foot in front, flanked by cavalry, and a rear line mainly of cavalry. The plan was that the foot should open the attack all along the line, and, when their attack began, to tell the horse should charge. In the afternoon, the Rumelians, who formed the vaward of the Turks, became visible. They had no intention of fighting that day and were about to camp. The Hungarian center and left attacked and dispersed them. The cavalry then struck in and rode forward, stimulated by the first easy success. But nothing save a freak of chance could have averted the discomfiture of the Christian army, for the battle was controlled by no commander and the divisions acted independently. The cavalry were beaten back by the steady fire of the enemy, and the Hungarian right wing, when the Turks spread out leftwards and rounded on its flank, retired towards the Danube. Twenty thousand of the Hungarian army were killed. The king escaped from the field, but in crossing a brook, his horse slipped on the bank and he was drowned. The sultan advanced and took possession of Buda, but he did not leave a garrison. He was not yet prepared to annex Hungary. 
His army was somewhat demoralized, and grave news came of troubles in Asia Minor. John Sapolia was crowned king November 10, supported by a large party, and his rivalry with Ferdinand, the late king's brother-in-law, who claimed the throne, determined the course of the following events. At first, things looked ill for Zapolia. Ferdinand drove him out of Buda, back to Transylvania, and was himself crowned at Stuhl Weissenburg, November 1527. Then Zapolia turned for help to the sultan, who, after protracted parleys, concluded a treaty of alliance with him, February 1528. Ferdinand also sent ambassadors, but they pleaded in vain and were even detained under arrest at the suggestion of some Venetian envoys. On the other hand, Francis I concluded a treaty with Zapolia, who promised that if he died without male heir, the crown of Hungary should descend to the French king's son, the Duke of Orléans. No French prince was destined ever to sit on the Hungarian throne, but before half a century had passed, a grandson of Francis was to wear the crown of Poland, and the political idea was the same. One of the results of the victory of Mohacz was the consolidation of Ottoman rule in the northwestern countries, Bosnia and Croatia. Yace, which had so long defied the sultans, was at last taken, 1528, and many other fortresses of less note. Early in 1529, it was known that Soliman was preparing for a grand expedition northwards in that year. Germany was alive to the danger. Luther changed his attitude and acknowledged the necessity of war against the Turks, while he insisted that all the disasters which had befallen Christendom from Varna to Mohach had been due to the interference of popes and bishops, language which the deeds of Archbishop Paul Tomori of Kalocha, the defender of southern Hungary, might have been held to belie. Soliman marched northwards. We can again follow his movements in his own diary. At the head of an immense army, set at 250,000 men, an exaggerated figure. King John met him on the field of Mohach, and the crown of St. Stephen on this occasion passed for safekeeping into the possession of Soliman, who never gave it back. Buda was easily taken, and the host advanced up the Danube, avoiding Pressburg, against Vienna. The garrison numbered 22,000. The walls were not strong, and Charles V, who ought to have hastened to the defense of the eastern mark, was in Italy. Ferdinand waited in terrible anxiety at Linz. He believed that it was the purpose of Soliman to winter in Vienna and spend three years in the subjugation of Germany. The garrison of Vienna, in the meanwhile, made suitable arrangements for encountering the storm. The houses outside the walls were leveled, the streets within torn up, buildings unroofed. The city was surrounded on September 26, and the operations began with mining. But the difficulty of procuring provisions and the approach of winter rendered the army impatient and when successive attempts at storming had been repelled with grave loss, October 9-12, to 12, 
it was decided to retreat after one more effort, especially as help was approaching about 60,000 men from Bohemia, Moravia, and Germany. A half-hearted attack closed the episode of the first siege of Vienna, and at midnight the signal was given for a retreat, which was marked by every horror. On December 16, Soliman records, he returned, fortunately, to Stambul. He had failed in Austria, but Hungary lay at his feet, and John Zapolia, though not a tributary, was absolutely dependent on his support. The Ottoman state is marked off from the rest of Europe by a legal and political system which is based entirely on religious foundations. In Christian countries, religion has frequently modified the principles of secular law, but in Turkey, the problem of legislators has been to relax or adjust the interpretation of the canons of Islam so as to permit it to take its place among European states and to establish a modus vivendi with neighboring unbelievers. Under Mohammed II, a general code of law called the Pearl was drawn up by the Mullah Kusrev in 1470, but this was superseded by Ibrahim Halabi of Aleppo, who, in the reign of Soliman, compiled a code which he named the Confluence of the Seas, Multeka al-Abhar. The sources from which these codes were compiled are four, the Koran, the Sunnahs, the sayings of the Prophet which depend on early tradition and inferences from his actions and his silences, the apostolic laws, explanations and decisions given by the Prophet's apostles and chief disciples in theological and moral matters, and the Kiyas, canonical decisions of the four great Imams who lived in the 8th and 9th centuries. One of the universal duties of Islam on which the Code of Ibrahim does not fail to insist was the conquest of the unbelievers. They must be converted to Islam, subjected to tribute, or destroyed by the sword. The fulfillment of this religious duty was the end and purpose of the Ottoman power to which its institutions were designed and excellently adapted. Under the autocratic will of one man, possessing religious as well as secular supremacy, and holding a sovereignty which the sacred book forbade to be divided, the whole forces of the state could be directed to the execution of his policy. And these forces were organized in such a way that they could move swiftly and promptly at his command. The two features of this organization were a feudal system of a peculiar kind and the slave tribute. The main part of the Turkish army was the feudal levy of cavalry, the Sipahis. When a new country was conquered, it was parceled out into a number of larger fiefs called Ziamets and smaller called Timars, which were assigned to Ottoman horse soldiers in reward for military service in the past and with the obligation of military service in the future. The holder of each fife was bound to supply one or more mounted soldiers according to the amount of its value. In the time of Soliman, the total number of the levy of the Sipahis is said to have amounted to 130,000. 
a number of districts or sabers, was constituted as a sanjak or standard under the authority of a sanjak beg, sanjak lord, and sanjaks were combined into larger districts, ayalayets, under beglerbegs, lord of lords. All these governors were subject to the two great beglerbegs of Europe and Asia, Rumelia and Anatolia, military and administrative powers being combined. When the word of the sultan flew forth to summon the army to war, there was no delay. The horse of the Sipahi was always ready at a moment's notice. All the sabers rallied around the Sanjak. The Sanjaks gathered to the mustering place appointed by the Beglerbeg and there awaited further orders. The feudal system of the Turks, founded by Othman, remodeled by Murad I, 1375, differed from the feudal systems of the West in this one important respect, that the fief of the father did not necessarily descend to the son. Each man had to win a right to a fief by his own valor. But, on the other hand, only the son of a feudal tenant could become a feudal tenant. This provision was a safeguard of the military effectiveness of the system, and it must also be remembered that the Ottoman tenants were still nomads in spirit and had not developed the instincts of a settled agricultural population. Such a levy was almost equivalent to a standing army, but there was also a standing army in a precise sense, an establishment of paid troops, recruited from captive children who were robbed from hostile or subject Christian countries and educated in Islam. A strict but not cruel discipline trained some of them to be foot soldiers, while others, under an equally severe regime, served in the seraglio, thence rising gradually to offices of state or being drafted into the brilliant corps of the paid mounted soldiery who were the bodyguard of the sultan. The Turks had one enlightened principle of education. They observed carefully the particular qualifications of the individual youth and adapted his work to his powers. Those of the Christian children, taken every five years or oftener as a tribute from the subject population, who had not the finer qualities which marked them out for service in the palace, were set to all kinds of hard work. But their stern discipline seems to have been compatible with acts of petulance and outrage in the city. In this preliminary stage, they were called Ajami Oglanlars. At the age of about 25, they were enrolled among the Yani Chari, new soldiery, whose name we have corrupted into Janissaries. The Janissaries, organized by the great Sultan Orchan, constituted the infantry of the Ottoman army, and at the beginning of Soliman's reign, they numbered only about 12,000. Yet this small body often decided battles. They had won Kosovo and Varna, and had never been known to flee. All except men of Christian birth, thus trained from childhood, were jealously excluded from the corps, which was under the command of the Aga of the Janissaries, one of the highest officers of the realm. The fundamental laws which regulated their discipline were absolute obedience to the commanders, abstinence from luxury, modest attire, 
fulfillment of the duties of Islam. They were unable to marry or exercise any trade or leave their camp. It is clear that the existence of such a body of warriors was, in itself, a constant incentive or even compulsion to warlike enterprises, and peacefully inclined sultans like Bayezid II were unpopular with the Janissaries who were more fanatical in fighting for Islam even than men of Muslim race. Without any bonds of family or country, they were the creatures of the sultan, in turn imposing their yoke on him. Skanderbeg's tenacious devotion to the memory of his father and the Albanian mountains was an isolated exception. Against an army thus disciplined and organized, propelled by the single will of an able ruler, Europe without unity could do nothing. The Sipahis were still the restless herdsmen of the waste, impatient of tillage, eager to go forth where there was fighting and plunder. Only standing forces of mercenary troops could have availed against them, and such forces would have cost enormous sums of money which were not to be raised. The fanaticism of the Mohammedan faith, though not so tempestuous as in the first century of the Hijra, could still kindle and incite, and it was habitual. The Turks needed no John of Capistrano for the preaching of a holy war. The insidious doctrine of fatalism, which holds the minds of Oriental nations, fosters some of the qualities which make a soldier a useful instrument. But it is worthy of notice that, though kismet pervades the Turkish spirit, it is not an article of Mohammedan belief. The doctrine of predestination applies only to the spiritual state and the future life, a point at which Islam and Calvinism meet. But it does not apply to secular and political matters, in which free will has full play. But, notwithstanding the true doctrine, the Turkish nation believes in kismet, and regards murmurs of discontent against existing circumstances as irreligious. And this attitude of mind, which sustains the soldier in the hour of jeopardy, has helped to keep the Ottomans far behind in the march of civilization, hindering them, for instance, from taking the ordinary precautions against plague or fire. But an organization, admirably designed for its purpose, was useless without brains to wield it. Everything depended on the strength and capacity of the sultan, and if there had been any means of securing a series of successors equal in ability to the Murads and Mohammeds, to Selim I and Soliman the lawgiver, the Ottoman state need not have declined. The succession of exceptionally great rulers lasted in the Ottoman line longer than such successions usually last, but after Soliman, their character changed, and even in his reign, the first symptoms of decline appeared, and those inherent vices in the organization, which demanded constant precautions, began to emerge. The discipline of the Janissaries was undermined, when the law which forbade their marrying was relaxed, and the feudal system was corrupted by the assignation of fiefs to others than the sons of feudal tenants, who had served in war. 
but this decline lies outside our present range. In the theoretical morality of Islam, nothing is of higher importance than justice and the protection of the oppressed, and it is probable that under the early Ottoman rulers, the administration of justice was better in Turkey than in any European land. The Mohammedan subjects of the sultans were more orderly than most Christian communities, and crimes were rarer. Under Mohammed II, there were two supreme kadiaskars, or military judges, one for Europe and one for Asia. The conquests of Selim added a third for Syria and Egypt. All the Qadis, judges of the empire, were subordinate to them. From the sentences of the judges, men could always appeal to the Muftai, or Sheikh al-Islam, who was the religious oracle and interpreter of the law, holding the position of head of the ulema, that is, all the literati. But he was not a religious authority independent of the caliph. The caliph could depose him. He had no executive power. He could not enforce his pronouncements, fetvas. But their authority was recognized as morally binding, and the mufti took care not to endanger his position by issuing sentences which would run counter to the sultan's known will. It was Mohammed II who defined the position of the Grand Vizier as the sultan's representative and regent. The Grand Vizier received the right of using the sultan's seal and of holding a divan or state council in his own palace, which was called the High Porta. It was a position of which the political importance necessarily varied according to the character of the ruler. But it is not till the reign of Soliman that the Grand Vizier attains the plenitude of his power. In 1523, Soliman raised to the Grand Vizirate his friend Ibrahim, a Greek who had been captured by corsairs, and in the following year married him to his own sister. Ibrahim associated with his master more as a friend and equal than any vizier with any sultan. They were bound together by youthful friendship and common tastes. Ibrahim, says a contemporary Venetian report, is the heart and breath of the padishah, who does nothing without consulting him. He is learned, fond of reading, and knows his law well. In 1529, before setting out for Hungary, Soliman increased his salary to 60,000 ducats and made him commander-in-chief, Seraskar, of the army. Quote, All that he says is to be regarded as proceeding from my own pearl-reigning mouth. End quote. This delegation of supreme military command is an innovation not in the spirit of Orshan or Muhammad, and is a premonition of the new paths along which the empire is about to travel. It is a significant fact that no sooner has the Vezirat reached a high elevation than the influence of the harem begins to make itself felt for the first time in Ottoman history, and as an influence hostile to the vizier. The income of the Ottoman state at the beginning of the 16th century was probably about four million ducats, and it went on increasing with new conquests till, 
toward the middle of the century it seems to have approached ten millions. The head of the financial administration was the Defterdar of Romelia, to whom those of Anatolia and, afterwards, of Aleppo were subordinate. About three-fifths of the revenue were produced by the Haraj, or capitation tax, levied on all unbelieving subjects, with the exception of priests, old men, and children under ten. It does not seem to have been oppressive. It was generally paid with docility, and the duties on exports and imports were so reasonable that commerce, which was mainly in the hands of Christians, was in a flourishing condition. The worst feature in the fiscal system of the Turks was the stupid method employed in levying the land tax, incident on all landowners without distinction of creed, which might amount to much more than a tithe of the produce. The farmer was not allowed to begin the harvest until the tax-gatherer was on the spot to watch over the interests of the treasury, and he was forbidden to collect the produce until the fiscal portion was set aside. Apart from the incidental waste of time and injury to the crops, the inevitable consequence of this system has been that agriculture has never improved. Certain primitive methods of work are prescribed by the law, and these and no others must be followed under the tax officer's eye. Another weak point in the financial system has been the depreciation of the coinage, a process which had set in at least as early as the beginning of the 16th century. Until the empire began to decline and the system became established of leaving the provinces to be exploited by officials who had paid heavy sums for their posts, the condition of the subject Christian population as a whole was perhaps more prosperous under Turkish rule than it had been before. The great oppression was the tribute of children, but even this was thought to have some compensations. Greeks, Albanians, and Servians rose to the highest positions in the state. Christians and Jews were, as a matter of policy, suffered to exercise their religions freely, a toleration which might indeed at any moment be withdrawn. In nothing had Muhammad shown astuter statesmanship than in his dealings with the Greek church. He knew the Romaic language well and had sounded the nature of the Greeks of that age. He was well aware how they were absorbed in narrow theological interests, utterly divorced from the principles of honor and rectitude, which they were always willing to sacrifice in order to gain a victory for their own religious party. He saw that the Greek church, under a patriarch appointed by the sultan, would be a valuable engine of government, placing in the sultan's hands a considerable, indirect influence over the laity. It was, further, his policy to favor the Greek church, in view of the crusading plans of the Latin powers, for though the Roman pontiffs of this period showed themselves able to rise to the higher conception of the unity of Christendom, the bigoted hatred existing between the Latin and Greek churches went far towards paralyzing the sympathies of the Catholic countries. Muhammad aimed at fostering this ill feeling, and he was thoroughly successful.
the supremacy of the infidel sultan seemed more tolerable than the supremacy of the heretical pope. Naturally, Muhammad chose for the patriarchate one of those who were opposed to the union of the Greek and Latin churches, George Scolarios, a man of learning and bigotry, who had thrown whatsoever obstacles he could in the way of the emperor Constantine's forlorn defense of Constantinople. On his election, George took the name of Genadios. A church in the city was assigned to him, and the sultan guaranteed that he and his bishops should be exempt from tribute and enjoy their former revenues. But the internal dissensions and intrigues of the Greek clergy and laity rendered the position of the patriarch so difficult that in a few years Genadius resigned. His successors were equally helpless, and after the fall of Trebizond, 1461, the struggle between the Trapezuntine and the Constantinopolitan Greeks, each anxious to secure the patriarchate for a man of their own, made matters worse. A wealthy Trapezuntine named Simeon compassed his own election by paying a thousand ducats to the sultan, and this was the beginning of a system of unveiled simony which has lasted in the Greek church to our own times. This payment was increased at subsequent elections. Afterwards, a yearly contribution to the treasury was promised. But it is important to observe that these tributes were not originally imposed by the sultans, but were voluntarily offered by the intriguing Greeks. The policy of Muhammad, who was solicitous to repeople Constantinople, had the effect of gathering thither a multitude of Greek families of the better class who might otherwise have sought refuge in foreign lands. Settled in the quarter of the Fenar, in the north of the city, they were known as Fenariots, and came to be reputed a class of clever, unprincipled intriguers. We have followed the expansion of Turkey up to the eve of its greatest splendor and widest extent. Subsequent pages will tell how the Ottomans advanced westwards by sea, and how the Austro-Spanish monarchy set limits to their expansion both in the north and in the south. End of section 11 Recording by Linda Johnson